Well, welcome to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. My name is Jerome Thomas. As always, Tom Firestone is with me. Um, got a couple things we want to talk about today. But first, so I woke up this morning, Tom, and my, my phone uh, always gives me my, my daily news. And the one piece of news that I got was that uh, overnight, the, the Chinese government had instituted regulations banning children under 18 from playing any video games during the work week or during the school week and limiting it uh, to one hour on the weekends. There had previously been limitations, but those limitations sort of existed on every day of the week. Um, this is a, a significant uh, crimp in a, in, a, in a child's lifestyle, whether it's in China or elsewhere. And it made me think of a song that I'm gonna play real quick because I, I was running, I'm like, it's a perfect song. I haven't done this in a while, and then we'll get into the actual substance. But as always, we try to come out of, out of left field every once in a while for you guys with something that's relevant and topical to international business, but still isn't sort of the typical boring stuff you see coming out of, uh, you know, uh, the, you know the, the other media and the law firm press. So here you go. Ready? came out 30 years ago right around this date it was the last cd actually a tape that i bought before i went to college my freshman year um and these themes topics just keep on coming about tom right you know angst over kids watching too much tv and why aren't kids outside playing more etc cetera, etc cetera. it just made me think it's like it's 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 a new day it's a, it's a new enemy but it's the same argument so anyway uh, I'll get off my soapbox and we'll move to something more topical which is this week in government enforcement so, uh, Tom, you are going to kick us off today talking about a, a real cool uh, new case brought by the Department of Justice, an elder fraud case that was actually done as a criminal RICO matter um, as a part of a, a larger initiative, I understand. I'll let you talk a little bit about that, but I'm super interested to hear about that. And then I'm going to finish this up today talking about the case SEC, the Manish Lashwani, which is both a, an SEC and a U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of California. Um, criminal charge against founding or a founder of a uh, of a Silicon Valley based tech company for securities and other fraud relating to misrepresentations made to investors uh, serves as a couple of important reminders. We'll get into that later. So Tom, maybe why don't you just quick jump in and, and, and talk about this cool new case? Thanks, Jerome. I thought you were going to say you you took a lesson from the Chinese government, put the same ban on your own household. Um, uh, I, Tom, I sent it to my son as basically, uh, hey, look what the Chinese are doing. And his response is, Dad, they've been doing that for years. They have a separate platform for this and that. The kids know all this already. Like, <laughs> I learned about it from the Wall Street Journal this morning. My kids know it for two years, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should have our jobs. Um, 
That's exactly it. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Jerome. Um, as you said, there was a fascinating indictment that came out in the um, Southern District of California, the San Diego U.S. Attorney's Office last week, which really highlights the crime of elder abuse and the role that criminal or sophisticated criminal organizations play in defrauding vulnerable elderly people. Elder uh, fraud is a very serious problem that I think does not get the attention it deserves. Nobody knows quite how widespread it is. A couple estimates. The um, Consumer Fraud Protection Bureau has estimated there are about 3.5 million elder financial crimes a year with an average loss to each victim of about forty-five dollars to $50,000, which is pretty much consistent with what we saw in this case. Um, the FBI has also come out with some statistics in 2019. They got over 68,000 complaints from victims over the age of 60 and calculated the total losses in those cases about $835 million. So it's a widespread problem. We don't know exactly how widespread, but we know that it's widespread. We also know that this is really just a deplorable crime, a particularly deplorable crime in my view, because it preys on people's sympathies for their family members, their grandchildren, as we'll see in this most recent case. It preys on their lack of technical sophistication. A lot of these frauds involve people calling with phony tech support, um, claims knowing that elderly people might not be as sophisticated technologically as the younger generation and offering to help them with computer problems, telling them they need some sort of uh, attention and through that getting their data, which is then used for more sophisticated um, crimes. And also it could be, I mean, this could be somebody's life savings. They don't really have the same kind of earning potential that people in their thirties and forties do. And so this could be all the money they've saved for their retirement. And part of the scams, I think, is what people are figuring is the, the criminals are figuring is because the victims are elderly, maybe they'll die before the case is fully litigated and they'll never get the money back. It'll be easier for them to keep the money by dragging these things out through court proceedings if they're caught. So I think that this is really just a case that really a kind of crime that warrants enhanced attention and enhanced penalties. And as some of the cases that have been prosecuted reveal, it's often carried out by sophisticated international criminal organizations using call centers overseas to make the calls to the victims and using sophisticated hacking networks often based overseas. Now, this problem started to get attention in uh, 2017, Congress passed the Elder Abuse and Prevention Act which among other things directed US law enforcement to commit more resources to combating this problem and also to improve coordination among the different agencies that are looking at it. And the DOJ in response to this, um, shortly after the passage of that act, set up the Elder Justice Initiative, which is a multidimensional effort to combat this. And I think it's really one of the best yet least noticed DOJ initiatives. It has a combination of victim support services, tracking of the kinds of scams, improved reporting mechanisms for victims, um, including a hotline, um, dissemination of warning materials to at-risk populations, training for prosecutors and investigators, law enforcement task forces, federal, state, and across agencies, and requires DOJ to designate elder justice coordinators in each of the 94 U.S. attorney's offices. So I think that we've really, we've really seen some results coming out of this. Uh, attorney General Garland seems very committed to continuing these efforts. On World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, which is June 15th, he made a very strong statement um, 
reaffirming DOJ's commitment to combating elder, um, elder abuse. And he actually pointed out that the DOJ FY22 budget request includes a 44% increase for elder justice efforts above the FY21 budget. So the, we're gonna see more of these kinds of cases. What struck me about this most recent case out of San Diego last week, and it's captioned uh, United States versus Knowles, is that it is a criminal RICO case. It charges eight defendants with running a RICO enterprise dedicated to carrying out so-called grandparent scams. Now, if you read the indictment, what they did was they called the members of the criminal organization, called elderly victims, they impersonated sometimes their grandchildren, often they impersonated friends or lawyers assisting the grandchildren, saying things like, oh, your grandchild has, you know, gotten into a car accident, was arrested for drunk driving, they're in jail, they need money for bail, they need money for a lawyer, they need money for medical bills. And they're pretty sophisticated. They would create phony file numbers for the cases so they would make it sound authoritative. They were apparently effective in some cases at impersonating lawyers. And they always told the victims not to tell anyone about this, not to tell their family members. They said the judge has imposed a gag order in the case. And they said that if you violate the gag order, you or your grandchild, grandchild could get an increased penalty and increased charges. And so people are scared. They don't know what to do. They think it's, you know, moment of uh, desperation for their poor grandchild and they send money to them. And, you know, now a lot of this seems kind of crude and a lot of people won't respond to this and will hang up the phone appropriately enough, but enough people respond. Um, the indictment has lays out 22 specific victims, each of whom provided, you know, and you read it, like, thousands to in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars to these fraudsters. So you don't need everybody to respond. You only need enough to respond to steal money. And according to the DOJ press release on this case, the criminal gang stole um, from over 70 elderly victims. They're not all in the indictment. Over 70 elderly victims, and they made uh, more than $2 million from these scams. You read the indictment, and it's just like a mafia indictment. It details a sophisticated organization consisting of the organizers, crew leaders is how they're referred to, who obtained the information regarding the victims, got their contact information from other nationwide accomplices who specialize in collecting this kind of data, and then hired mules. And the mules are the ones who went and picked up the cash um, for obvious reasons, they preferred to get cash from the victims, who picked up the cash from the victims, then transferred it to the organizers, who then disseminated it and got it safely um, offshore. So it's a fairly, for on the one hand, a crude, simple scheme, but on the other hand, a fairly sophisticated organization. The predicates that they charged are extortion, fraud, and uh, money laundering. And so I think what this shows is a very serious effort by DOJ to go after these kind of scams. As far as I'm aware, this is the first RICO case involving this kind of abuse where the, the organization was set up for this, kind of, um, for this kind of purpose. And I think we're gonna see more of these kinds of cases. Typically, as we all know, somebody gets arrested, somebody flips, they talk about others um, who are involved in the same kinds of scams. These scams have become more prevalent, obviously, with the development of technology and with COVID. So I hope we will see more effective um, combating of this by DOJ. The key is obviously education of potential victims so that they don't respond. Uh, they don't get lured into these traps. And I'll just say, you know, if anyone uh, is interested in this or feels that they've got a 
relative who has been a victim or a potential victim of this, go to the DOJ Elder Justice Initiative website. They have excellent resources on there. And I would encourage anyone who may have encountered this crime to, uh, to consult that. So with that, back to you, Jerome. So Tom, I don't know whether I ever told you this. So right after we moved into our new offices in the new building here in Chicago, uh, I was worse still an associate. I got a call from my grandma who spent her life in central Illinois um, uh, on a farm, family farm, small family farm. My grandfather was a, a farmer. My, my mom was born on a farm. Um, and I get a call from her saying, Jerome, how dare you? Where are you? And I'm like, grandma, what are you talking about? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm working in my office. She's like, no, you're not. I just got a call from you that said you were overseas and you'd been arrested and you needed money. And that, and then she, and I wasn't supposed to tell Dana. And so I went up to the local, I, whatever, wherever they've got the money transmitter at the Walmart or whatever in town. It's one of these typical middle America, small towns. Right. And she wired thousands of dollars and, and then they picked it up in cash and and uh, and so the point is, this is real. I mean, I, I, it's actually happened. I've been a party to one of these things. And you feel you feel dirty. I'm convinced what they do is they go through, especially in small town America. Right. Grandparents love to have the announcements of their grandkids being married or having kids. Right. And so everything goes in the local newspaper. And as a result, if you're a criminal enterprise, you go to the Rochelle Hub newspaper. You're able to see who Lucille's grandchildren are her great-grandchildren, their spouses' names, all of that. It's real quick to put all that together in a matter of minutes if you can, if you can sort of do that uh, intelligence gathering. And then it's, unfortunately, it is not that hard to find one in every 20 or 30 people to believe this. Well, and the point about the foreign arrest is a key one. That's what a lot of these uh, rely on, because when you hear that somebody's been arrested in a foreign country, it's much harder to check up on that. Yes. And it's much more intimidating. And I think a lot of what they do is they look at, you know, American universities abroad, who's on a study abroad program. A lot of that information is out there publicly. And then they call your granddaughter was just arrested in Milan or something like that. And it's, you know, you're scared and you're more likely to send money and it's harder to verify um, what's actually going on. And so it is, um, it's something where we need a lot of education to make sure that people don't get victimized by this. And as I say, if any, if ever a crime warranted enhanced penalties to me, this is it because it just, it really does uh, play on uh, prey on vulnerable victims. It's scary fact. Number two, how they knew to pick my grandma based on me being a likely candidate of being someone overseas Things that make you go, hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I, got, I, got, I just got to chill. I'm sorry, Tom. It's just, it's crazy. Um, so I'm going to talk real quickly, guys, about um, a case filed last week by the SEC. And again, there was also a, a parallel criminal case filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California. The case, I'm talking about the SEC case here, um, although there are parallel charges criminally, SEC versus Manish Lashwani. It's not a settled case, so there's the litigation is currently pending. Um, the SEC charged Lashwani with violating the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws and is looking for injunction, penalties, and uh, an officer and director bar. Um, so why do I want to talk about this today? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, it's technically a, quote, private company offering fraud. Um, and let's talk a minute about what that means, right? So when everybody hears SEC, they think, well, it's the SEC only regulates 
companies that have publicly traded stock, right? New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, the, uh, the other national securities exchanges, um, even the over-the-counter of the markets. But the reality is um, the securities laws define issuer in many cases to be broad enough to include any company that is offering stock in itself to investors in the U.S. or from the U.S. So a company that is looking for investments privately, even through registered offerings under the uh, under the Securities Act, but not necessarily looking to register and have its stock publicly traded. Um, those are all offerings, right? Offering is the key word. It is an offering um, to investors that is subject to pretty much the full panoply of the federal securities laws, uh, the, the registration provisions, uh, as well as the uh, as well as the anti-fraud provisions. Um, and, and even if you aren't subject to the registration provisions, i.e., even if you don't have to file a registration statement with the SEC because you're a, a private offering, for example, you are still subject to the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws. Um, so that's sort of lesson number one for everyone to remember. There's also a second um, thing to think about about why this is important, right? The SEC has a keen interest in investigating and pursuing frauds of sort of these private high-flying companies, right? You'll hear them referred to as unicorns, right? And the SEC used the term unicorn to describe the, the company at issue um, in, in this case, which was Headspin. Um, we'll get into what Headspin is. Um, but but you know, the, the SEC loves to investigate conduct and potential misconduct at companies that are touting incredible valuations or incredible revenues that you know perhaps don't have the level of scrutiny through a, a registered public accounting firm and regular audits and an audit committee, et cetera. So that's number two to keep in mind. Three, keep in mind um, is that the SEC announced had a press release on this case, which it doesn't always do for cases, and it always doesn't do for private company offering frauds. Um, but I think there's something else at play here. If you've been reading anything in the press, the Elizabeth Holmes and you know the, the founder of Theranos, that criminal trial, she settled and Theranos and others settled with the SEC a couple of years ago. But the criminal trial is set to kick off in a couple of weeks. And there's a lot of hullabaloo in the press about this trial, right? I can't open my emails every day without getting 10 sort of National Law Journal or Law 360 notices about the upcoming trials. Fascinating to follow in our space. But it, you know, I also don't think it's any mystery that the SEC chose to announce a press release on this case while the criminal trial in the what we'll call the Theranos matter is on the is, is is on the doorstep of kicking off. So again, the SEC very much wants to let everyone know that they are in the business of investigating and prosecuting private company offering frauds. Um, what are the allegations? Um, so Headspin, that's the company at issue. It's a Silicon Valley hardware and software tech company that uh, allegedly generated virtually all of its revenue by charging customers fees to use its uh, hardware and software products. Um, between 2018 and 2020, the SEC said that its CEO, um, again, Manish Lashwani, engaged in a number of different fraudulent, you know, uh, avenues of fraudulent conduct designed to boost the valuation of the company ultimately to over $1 billion. $1 billion. The SEC claimed that Lashwani committed this fraud by inflating key financial metrics of the company and falsifying its internal sales record. Uh, and that it then, then he then used this, in, uh, this information to inflate the valuation uh, of the company and make it appear to be more 
transparent, uh, more uh, attractive to investors looking to um, invest in the company. And the SEC said between this 2018-2020 period, um, uh, Headspin uh, was able to attract approximately $80 million in investments in this, in this two-year period. Um, the SEC also claimed that, that, that in addition to inducing these investors to invest through fraudulent pretenses or, or, or fraudulent representations, that, uh, that, that uh, Lashwani was also able to sell his stock or shares of his stock to somebody, presumably based also on these inflated valuations based on the allegedly fabricated um, uh, financial metrics and sales figures. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what their uh, what, what what the SEC is is really getting into here. So the SEC claimed, and uh, you can go look at the complaint; it's publicly available on the SEC's website. We we'll just give you a flavor. Lashwani inflated headspins ARR, which is annual recurring revenue, by falsely increasing the values of several existing customer deals of all sizes ranging from big deals with Silicon Valley heavyweights to low dollar value deals with smaller companies and relying on uncommitted amounts from non-binding agreements with other customers. He entered the fabricated amounts into the company's detailed ARR tracking spreadsheet that he alone controlled. Um, they then give an example. For example, in 2018, Lashwani sent an investor sent an investor a version of the ARR spreadsheet that claimed a reseller, which it defines as customer one, was contributing approximately 1 million in ARR. In reality, customer one and, and Lashwani had signed a non-binding agreement that among other things, set a maximum cap of 1.215 million on its purchases over two years from the company. Uh, and that the customer one had not was not obligated to pay anything until Headspin sent invoices at a later date. And so you, so again, you have, well, there wasn't a binding deal. Uh, the invoices weren't set, nothing triggering a customer's obligation to pay. So you have, you have revenue recognition issues obviously built in there as well, Tom, because you know, obviously what the SEC is saying without necessarily saying it is that not all of the uh, the elements of recognizing revenue were present there. Oh, and by the way, we don't actually think customer one ever said they were going to buy that. And here's why we, we think customer one never said they were going to buy that. And, and, and therefore, these were misrepresentations. Um, in addition, Lashwani, quote, dictated inflative, inflated revenue figures each quarter to Headspin's bookkeeper, who recorded those numbers in the company's financial statements. He frequently sent the numbers without supporting documentation, parentheses, like contracts and invoices, notwithstanding the bookkeeper's regular requests for such backups. And he sometimes sent her fake or altered invoices that he had created. And ellipses, it goes on. Third, uh, another uh, interesting allegation, uh, and, and one that I think it, it's not getting full play in the complaint, or it's not really being being put out there as a main allegation, but it's one that caught my eye. Relatedly, Lashwani also knew or was reckless in not knowing that Series B, a series of investors, would be impressed by Headspin's purported roster of customers, which included some of the largest and most recognizable technology companies in the world. But Lashwani knowingly or recklessly included numerous companies on the list, even though those companies had 
terminated their relationships with Headspin or had declined to make a purchase after trying Headspin's products. For example, in a 2018 pitch deck that Lashwani shared with investors, it falsely asserted that Headspin had experienced, quote, no customer loss and triple digit growth. In reality, Headspin had lost customers that decided to stop using Headspin services. For instance, the deck included the logo of a highly successful Silicon Valley-based computer and cell phone manufacturer, even though Customer 3's sole purchase expired more than a year at earlier and was not renewed. So what you can see here is that they're saying, look, you're not only, you're not only, you're not only doctoring the books and you're not only in, inserting figures for sales that don't exist, uh, you are also sort of pulling at the heartstrings of investors by putting companies on your customer list that maybe technically were customers at one point and might be customers at some point in the future, but in the interim have shown no indication of being ongoing customers. It's an interesting allegation, Tom, because at what point does a customer who existed at one point become a customer again, and have they always been a customer, right? There's a little bit of, you know, I, I, I think reasonable minds will differ on, on whether that really is a fraud. But nevertheless, the SEC is, is, is being pretty punchy there saying, you are including companies that had no longer or had said stop using your services. And our view is that that's fraud. That's a misleading statement. Which is but, really if there, but if there's a good faith basis for characterizing them as customers, maybe this is a temporary interruption. Maybe they're going to come yeah. back. Yeah. That seems to me a, an aggressive position by them, not an unreasonable one, because it may be that these are ghost customers. But the yeah. fact that they're not at that moment a customer seems to me insufficient in and of itself to make out fraud. Yes. Yeah. So, look, I, I think that's why it's not allegation number one in the complaint. Right. You, you have to read the complaint and kind of tease it out. Um, but that's oftentimes how the SEC works, right? They're, they're, they're not going to throw up a test balloon as allegation number one in an unsettled federal case, right? They're going to throw this in as allegation three or four, see if they're able to withstand motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment, and then ultimately maybe prevail at trial, and then use that kind of as regulation by enforcement, right? Continue to use that as precedent moving forward in other cases. So again, um, this might not be the first time we hear this type of allegation in a case, but certainly um, it's the first time I can recall hearing something like this. Um, and it, it seems like from what you talked about last week with the ghost trading in this, there is just a general um, uh, increase in the boldness of charging decisions at the SEC, which of course is, I think, what we expected, but we're really seeing it play out in concrete cases now. Yeah, you, you, you know, um, without getting too much into things. The SEC has always been bold in charging things in cases. Um, oftentimes, though, the, that, that boldness is met with a settlement, right? You and I both, right, right? The SEC articulates a legal theory and that nine times out of 10, those are settled matters. Um, where the exception is, is in this case, where they are charging in an unsettled case, an executive with a bold theory, which I think many people would say, well, is that really fraud or is it just kind of hyping or being a little too positive, but not necessarily a material misrepresentation given everything else we know about that customer, right? 
And so, um, you know, it ultimately might be something that if it goes to full-blown trial, they just end up pursuing lightly or might get knocked out at, at some point along the way, or they just might choose to not pursue it when they, you know, put on their case in chief. But again, it does show that they're taking aggressive positions. They're not afraid to put their marker down in unsettled cases. Which is a development. Yes, which it absolutely is a development. So yeah, at the end of the day, the SEC said, so as a result of all of this, the ARR, which was purportedly 80 million, was, was shrunk down to 10 million as a result of the audit committee's investigation, which they discovered all of this conduct in 2020. So in the spring of 2020. So the, the, the ARR went from 80 to 10 and the valuation went from 1.1 billion down to approximately 300 million. And the SEC said at the time Lashwani started his scheme, they call it a scheme, it, valuation was around 500 million. So as a result of the discovery of all of this, the valuation actually went lower or yeah, lower than what it had been at the purported beginning of the scheme. Who, yeah, who, who knows, right? These are, these are allegations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, valuations are valuations. You can get to them any way. But the SEC is clearly saying that ARR shrunk by a huge amount and the valuation shrunk by almost as big of an amount from a percentage standpoint. So um, super interesting development. But again, Tom, great point on the boldness. Um, your time to me, those are intrinsic because I, I kind of they're just in the back of my mind and, and I know that in my DNA. But, um, you know, you're pulling the two similarities between the two weeks in a row and, and showing a boldness by the SEC. That really is one of the lessons here, right? Is that they're being bold in unsettled cases. <laughs> right. It's easy to be bold in settled cases because yes. yes. they're settled. They're not going to be tested. But to be bold in an unsettled case means that you might have to defend that theory yep. in court, which is um, a not always the case with them or with DOJ. So um, fascinating development. All right. So we are we are done here. We're, we're all we're all set for the week. Uh, we'll come back next week, guys. Keep your after next week. Next Monday is Labor Day. We'll come back the following week. Thank you, Tom. As always, one step ahead of me. We'll see you guys in two weeks. OK, Take thank care. you. Have a good one, guys. Bye.